Our sermon today is going to focus on faith. What faith is, what it looks like, and what the benefits of faith are. Six days before the Passover, Jesus therefore came to Bethany, where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. That's how this chapter starts. We have now entered into the last week of the life of Christ, pre-crucifixion. The Apostle John has taken us on a three-year journey through the life of Christ in 11 chapters. Beginning with the non-beginning, Christ eternal, prior to the incarnation. And then he quickly moves to his baptism, to the calling of the first disciples. In those 11 chapters, the, the apostle has given us evidence to attest to the fact that Jesus is God. He has done this for one stated reason. And he tells us that reason, that you might believe that Christ is the Son of God, and through belief you might have eternal life in his name. John chapter 20, verse 21. However, he hasn't done this by listing the countless, countless miracles, signs, and wonders that Jesus did as he walked the planet. All along, he has used specific miracles to give evidence to the claims of the deity of Christ. Those claims have come in the form of the eternal name of God being used by Jesus to explain who he is. The I am that I am. There are seven specific times in the Gospel of John that Jesus makes that I am claim. And there are seven specific miracles told to us in the book of John backing up every one of them. As we begin chapter 12, we have 10 chapters left in the book of John. 11 chapters for three years. 10 chapters for 10 days. Think about this. Wasn't the life of Christ important? Weren't his teachings and the example of how to live important? Wasn't the manner in which he dealt with people, the example to love others, important? Yeah. All these things are of importance in the life of the church, in the life of the Christian. Eleven chapters for three years, 10 chapters for 10 days. There's no other gospel that spends so much time on this last week. But the other gospels are close, though. Matthew used 33% of his gospel to cover this last week. Mark, nearly 40%. Luke, 25%. But there's no other gospel that records with such detail the prayers of Jesus the interaction between him and his father, and even the trajectory that he has for those that are his. And to be more specific in the book of John, those last 10 chapters, they skip over days. Don't even mention some of those 10 days. The reality is, is that all along, John has been taking us on a journey, a journey that has a specific ending place. And that ending point is the holy grail of all expeditions. It is the ultimate pot of gold, the fulfillment of all quests. It's the cross of Christ. 
It's the instrument of death that would bring the end of the life of Christ. This is how important the cross of Christ is in the life of the church, in the life of the Christian. A Bible without the cross is a Bible without meaning. The cross is the eternal answer to the problem of sin and separation from God that began in Genesis 3 and had gone unanswered for 4,000 years. That tree of Calvary is the reconciliation that the tree of life in the garden represented. The cross defines the kingdom of God. On it, God demonstrated who and what he is and the power that he holds over all his creation. The cross cancels the record of debt that stood against us, Colossians 2.14. On the cross, Jesus bore our sins in our bodies so that we might die to sin and death, 1 Peter 2.24. How important is the cross of Christ in your life? How important is it in your gospel presentation? How much emphasis do we put on the suffering, the care, the love of Christ, and the laying down of his life for those that he loves? Ten chapters for ten days. It is an unfortunate fact that many evangelicals are not enthralled by the cross. It's much too bloody for them, too unrefined, too unfulfilling, too challenging. The evidence of this is found within their places of learning, the Christian bookstore. If you desire to see what the prevailing love of those that call themselves Christians is, head to the local Christian bookstore. What you're going to find is that the Bible, in any and all of its formats, is relegated to a very small section. Commentaries? They're almost non-existent. Biographies, they suffer the same fate. 90% of that bookstore is filled with self-help. Get rich quick. What I think about the Bible, and you should listen to me because I'm good looking. Books. In fact, I would venture that there is no less heresy or foulness found in a Barnes & Noble bookstore than that which is found in the store that is supposed to be specifically built on feeding and edifying the saints. And it is this way. Because this is what those that call themselves Christians desire. We think way too little of the ministry of reconciliation that was the ministry of Christ. We think too little of the cross of Christ. And yes, the Bible is a bloody book. From the opening chapters to the very end, it is filled with the shedding of blood, both human and animal. It is filled with pain, sorrow, and suffering. That began with Adam and Eve, and continues through the last Adam. That first Adam was created to live in perfect relationship with God forever. But that last Adam, he came to earth 
to die. He came in obedience to the will of the Father. He came to earth for the ministry of reconciliation between his adoring Holy Father and that treasonous rebel, Adam, that had separated himself from his holiness along with the rest of the chosen of God. We're told in Romans 6.23 that the, wage of us, the wages of sin is death. At the cross, the elect of God have been reconciled to the Father. The peace that we have been seeking is found in his blood. Ephesians 2.14 tells us, For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. No blood means no peace. The cross was meant for us. It's what we deserve. The just punishment for our life here on earth. And the wrath that, the wrath that Christ endured at the cross is the wages that we have earned by our sin. But Christ came to earth to take your place on your behalf. He laid down his life for the sheep. He is our sacrificial lamb, as told to us in John 1, verse 29. Behold, the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He became a curse for us, Galatians 3, 13, meaning he takes the place of all the enslaved, the rebels, the idolaters, the murderers. He is the substitutionary substitutionary atonement of the elect of God. On the cross, Christ did not only conquer sin and death, but he conquered the spiritual forces of darkness as well. A cosmic eruption occurred at Golgotha. A new reality entered the world, and the spirit of this age was conquered by the Holy Spirit. Jesus disarmed the power and authorities of this world, putting them to open shame and triumphs over them on the cross. That's Colossians 2.14. And then in Matthew 16, after Jesus explained to his disciples that he must suffer, he tells them, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself Pick up his cross and follow me. Here is the importance of the cross in the life of the church, in the life of the Christian. Let us, like the Apostle John, glory in wonder at the love of Christ in his ministry of reconciliation. Let us never be like those that desire to get past the cross, they get bored with the cross. Those that say that they desire the deeper things of God. There is nothing deeper than the love of God, which is fully demonstrated at the cross. Ten chapters for ten days. And John begins his commentary on that last week of Christ. The most important week in all of humanity, with a dinner. There had to have been more important things that happened at the beginning of that week. 
So why would the Lord desire for us to know about a dinner? Well, one reason is to reaffirm that humanity of Christ as told to us in John 1.14. It says that the word became flesh and dwelt among us. He was one of us. He was not above those that were around him. He didn't keep himself aloof and distant from them. He didn't shun that rabble that gathered around him. He loved, and he was loved by those around him. And as he came back into Jerusalem, back to where he began his ministry, and where his ministry would end, he was greeted by the same three people who were highlighted in our last chapter. Lazarus, Martha, and Mary. Verses 2 and 3. So they gave a dinner for him there. Martha served, and Lazarus was one of those reclining with him at the table. Mary, therefore, took a pound of expensive ointment made from pure nard and anointed his feet, and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. And the house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. We know from verse 1 that this event happened in Bethany, but that doesn't mean that it happened at the house of Lazarus. In fact, we're told in Matthew 26, 6 and Mark 14, 3 that this dinner was held at the house of Simon the leper. Another person who had been drastically affected by the ministry of Jesus. And verse 2 tells us that Lazarus was reclining at the table with Jesus and the other guest. If he would have been the host, he wouldn't have been mentioned in this manner and he wouldn't have been doing that. But what a dinner this must have been. Picture it in your head. There reclined Jesus and his disciples the man who proclaimed the coming of the kingdom of God, the man who claimed that he was king of that kingdom, who claimed for himself the eternal heavenly title of God, the I am, and as proof of the reality of that claim, there sat at that table two of his star witnesses, Simon the leper and Lazarus, we don't know much about that man called Simon the leper, but we do know something about leprosy. It's a very contagious disease that attacks the nerves of the extremities, the skin, the lining of the nose, and the upper respiratory tract. That's why if you've ever seen pictures or renderings of people who had leprosy, they're always wearing claws over their face because that was to cover what was left of their nose. And God gave specific instructions on dealing with leprosy in Leviticus 13, Verses 45 and 6. He says, The leprous person who has the disease shall wear torn clothes and let the hair of his head hang loose. And he shall cover his upper lip and cry out, Unclean! Unclean! And he shall remain unclean as long as he has the disease. He is unclean. He shall dwell or he shall live alone. His dwelling shall be outside of the camp. This would have been the life of Simon the leper, an outcast, completely untouchable, being forced to live outside of human contact, being forced to proclaim unclean every time anyone even came close to him. Think about that life. This had been his life. 
But God had also made provisions for what a person was to do when they were cured of leprosy, told to us in Leviticus 14. And in the Old Testament, we're told of a handful of people in the Old Testament that had been stricken with leprosy and then cured. Moses, Miriam, even the evil king Uzziah. And every one of those instances, though, God was directly involved in the, both the giving and the removing of that disease. But fast forward to the New Testament. Something different has changed. Lepers were being cleansed, made whole, brought back into society. This had never happened before. Jesus forced the priests to dust off those age-old laws concerning the healing of lepers as people came back to them to be pronounced clean. We're told of one of these instances in Matthew chapter 8, verses 1 through 4. It says, When he, Jesus, came down from the mountain, great crowds followed him. And behold, a leper came to him and knelt before him, saying, Lord, if you will, you can make me clean. And Jesus stretched out his hand and touched him, saying, I will be clean. And immediately his leprosy was cleansed. And Jesus said to him, See that you say nothing to anyone, but go, show yourself to the priest, and offer the gift that Moses commanded for a proof to them. A proof that something had changed. And this Simon the leper, the one giving this dinner, would have had to follow those same instructions as given by Jesus. His cleansing from leprosy would have been a clear, undeniable proof that something had changed. There was now walking among them a man that could cure leprosy. He could do the impossible. A man that claimed to be God. But there's one more thing that I want to highlight from those Matthew verses that I just read. It's something that ties in with our verses from today. Something that had meaning in the life of Lazarus and Martha and Mary. Something that Jesus did before he healed that man who had prostrated himself out of submission to the one that he believed could heal him. That man, that leper, who had lived as a social outcast, who had suffered greatly because of this illness, a man who was never touched, never hugged, never even acknowledged. This man came and fell down out of desperation and out of faith at the feet of the one that he knew. Did you hear? He said, I know, Lord, I know that you can heal me. He knew that he could make him clean. And he was rewarded in that faith by the touch of Jesus. Don't overlook the humanness of this. This man was suffering. He had been suffering for a while. He had no doubt been mistreated by humans, shunned by them, probably picked on them. But God hadn't given up on him. He had given this man the ability to believe the unbelievable. The unbelievable truth that God had come in human form and was walking with the rest of humanity. And he, that he was in his midst at that moment. And God had given him the faith to believe that this unbelievable man had the ability to do the unbelievable. That he could heal him if only he desired to. And this God-man, 
did the unbelievable. He stretched out his hand and he touched that man. He demonstrated the love that he, God, has for his children by doing something that no one had ever done before. He stretched out his hand and he touched this man. No one touched this man. No one. If they did, they would have been considered unclean. They might get that dreaded disease. They might end up in the same social position that this man was, an outcast, untouchable. But Jesus stretched out his hand and touched him in his diseased, unclean state. And then, it was then that he said, I will be clean. Behold the love of God. Sinner, do not think that you are beyond God, that you have polluted yourself to the point that there is no hope, no going back. Don't think that because you turned your back on the false religion that is propagated in our culture, don't think that you are beyond help, that you have committed the unforgivable sin of blaspheming the Holy Spirit because you have walked away from that religion. Don't think that you are untouchable by God, that he will not heal you of your eternal illness that is separating you from him. If you in your brokenness, in your diseased state, believe that Jesus is God, then know that you must do as this leper did. You must fall at his feet. Proclaim him as Lord. And then you can know that he will, not might, but will stretch out his hand and touch you. That he will hold you fast. And that he wills that you be clean. Be set free. This Simon, who was giving this banquet for Jesus, is living proof of that fact. And then there was the, star, the second star witness of the fact that Jesus was the I Am. Lazarus. He reclined at the table with Jesus as well. Instead of those people in that area holding a banquet for his dear sisters because of the death of Lazarus, a celebration was given because Lazarus was alive. Instead of him lying on a cold stone table, he reclined at a table with the one who had brought him back to life. Is it any wonder then that we're told in verse 9 that the large crowds of the Jews learned that Jesus was there? They came, not only on account of him, but also to see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. Those masses who didn't believe, they could mock Jesus. They could follow the logical, the religious and political leaders who were desiring to shut him up and shut him down. But they could not deny that the man that was sitting at that table, that reclined at that table with Jesus, they can't deny that he used to be dead. And then we're told that Mary does something that we in our culture don't understand. 
She anointed Jesus. In the Gospel of Luke and Mark, we're told that she anointed his head. But here, in this Gospel, we're, we're told that she anointed his feet. We don't get the concept of anointing in this day and age. In fact, within evangelicalism, that term, anointing, is used incorrectly all the time. But the truth is, is that if you are a son of God, you then have been anointed by God, as told to us in 2 Corinthians 1 which tells us it is God who establishes us with you in Christ and who has anointed us and who has also put his seal on us and given us his spirit as in our hearts as a guarantee. But in biblical times, the anointing of a head of a person was done as a means to signal that he had been set apart for a specific position or ministry, such as when God sent Samuel to anoint Saul and then David as king of Israel. Used in this manner, what Mary did in anointing the head of Jesus was not only done out of adoration for him, but also as a proclamation that the king of kings was on the scene. But as we're told in our verses today, she anointed not only his head, but also his feet. The magnitude of that act is lost on us as well. In John chapter 1 of this gospel, John the Baptist said of this man, Jesus, he said, the strap of whose sandal I'm not worthy to untie. We don't really understand that. But in that culture and day, a disciple was expected to do everything for their master. Everything. But there was one thing that they were never expected to do. They could never be forced to do. And that was to handle the foot of their master or his shoe. That was something that only slaves <coughs> could be forced to do. What John the Baptist was saying in chapter 1 was that he was not worthy to be a disciple of Jesus. He was saying that he wasn't even worthy of being a slave to him. What Mary did here was extreme. It was completely out of the box, out of the social norms and acceptable practices. Polite women didn't do such things. But Mary was over being polite. She was not concerned with the social norms. She didn't care what other people thought about her. She adored this man. She worshipped this man. And she knew that this man was God in the flesh, worthy of all worship. She was like David before her, when he danced with all his might before the Lord, as told to us in 2 Samuel 6. She was willing to make a fool of herself in the eyes of the world out of adoration for God, the God that had regenerated her heart and made her come alive. And the adoration that she had for him was extreme. We, we are told that she anointed his feet with a pound of ointment. That's a lot. That is a lot. And it wasn't cheap stuff either. It was worth a year's salary. That's 300 denarii. That is a year's salary in our day and age. And in an instant, gone. It was more than likely her inheritance, all that she had for that rainy day. It was probably her dowry, what would have been expected to give in return for the covering and care of a husband. This was the faith of Mary. This was the adoration that she had for her God. And then, and then, 
after she had fallen to her knees at the king of kings, given all that she had in the world in an act of adoration for him, she then does completely, or she does something that's completely unthinkable. Completely unthinkable in that day and age. She let her hair down in front of everybody and she wiped his feet with it. This wasn't an, a sexual act, but it was intimate. Anointing his feet with her hands was not good enough for her. Her hands were much too common, much too rough for him. She desired more, better for him. She was willing to sacrifice not only her wealth for him, but also her social status as well. And the result of this act of faith was that the house was filled with the fragrance of perfume. Spurgeon once said that unless you surrender at the feet of Jesus, you will never be free. And that unless you submit at the feet of Jesus, he can never touch or teach you to the point that you will desire to anoint his feet with the fragrance of the perfume of faith. Mary's actions in the eyes of those that were there on that day were extreme. But hear how Matthew recounts what Jesus said concerning what she had done. How he viewed her devotion, her faith. But Jesus, aware of this, said to them, Why do you trouble this woman? For she has done a beautiful thing to me. For you always have the poor with you, but you will not always have me. In pouring this ointment on my body, she has done it in, to prepare me for burial. Truly I say to you, wherever this gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. Her act of adoration, of faith, was to be known for all eternity, will be known for all eternity. But they were there there were there on that day who didn't think so highly of Mary and of her act of faith. Verses 4 through 6. Judas Iscariot, one of the disciples, he who was about to betray him, said, Why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? He said this, not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief and having charge of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put in it. In these three verses, there's a statement and there's commentary. Verses 4 and 6 are commentary. Verse 5 is the statement. And within these verses, we see how differently the child of God views the goods of this world, contrasted with how the child of this world views those goods. Mary saw the value of that ointment not in worldly monetary value, but valued it only for its worth in an act of adoration towards Jesus. Judas, on the other hand, saw no value in it being used in this manner. To him, it had been completely wasted. And in his statement, he did something even worse than that. He placed the poor at the same value as the king of kings. And he also raised two questions that needed to be resolved. The first was this. 
Was Mary right to bestow on Jesus the honor that she did? And the second question, was she wrong to offer such an extravagant gift to Jesus when it could have been used to help so many people? And Jesus would answer both of those questions in verses 7 and 8. Jesus said, leave her alone so that she may keep it for the day of my burial. For the poor you always have with you, but you do not always have me. He, Jesus, speaks very clearly to the one who has just lashed out at the faithful act of Mary. He doesn't mince words in talking to him, nor is he polite. He tells Judas, leave her alone. And then he tells them that what she has done is not for this day alone, but for the day of days, the day that is coming very soon, the day that he would die at the hands of mere mortals because of the actions of the very man that he is addressing at that moment. That verse, verse 7 in ESV says, so that she may keep it for the day of burial. A better, a better rendering of the original Greek is, it was intended to be kept for the day of, prepara of preparation, preparation for my burial. According to Jesus, that ointment had always been intended for this purpose. That was why it was given to her by her father. It had always been set aside for this very act. And we can also see in this verse what the main goal in the life and ministry of Christ was. That ointment hadn't been predestined to anoint him as king, which he is. He says that it was predestined to anoint him for burial, for the cross. And then we need to deal with verse 8. Because that verse is widely misunderstood. Jesus is not discounting the poor. He isn't saying that he couldn't care less for them, that they aren't worth the effort. The Bible is very clear that we should care for the poor. Nor is he making a statement that no matter what we do the human, as humans, we will never wipe out poverty. That's not what he is saying. What he is saying, though, is that the poor, even the poor of all the poor in that city, or if you gathered all the poor of that city and of that country, or if you gathered all the poor of that city and that country and, and of the world at that time, even if you combined all the poor throughout human history, they would not stack up to, would not be equal in value to the king who Mary had just anointed. Not understanding what Jesus said about the poor is caused by a fundamental problem within humans. We think way too much of ourselves and way too little of God. A simple example of this fact can be seen in the argument that Paul makes concerning the grace of God in saving any humans. Romans 9.20, he tells us, But who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Will the clay say to the potter, Why have you made me this way? We hear that verse, read that verse, and it kind of gets the hair on the back of our, our neck to stand up when it says, Who are you, O man? But then we really get put out 
by that second part about the molded and molder. We want to argue that humans are of very much more value than clay. We have a lot more value than just a lump of clay. And in doing so, we have just proven what I just said. We think way too much of humans and way too little of God. Listen to God through Paul once again. But who are you, O oh man, to answer back to God? Did you hear the contrast? We read that sentence as if man and God are on the same level. They're not. That sentence was written with the emphasis placed on the fact that the two are not equal. Who are you, O oh man? Think about what and who you are. You are created. You are a sinner. Who are you, O oh man, to answer back to God? Think about who and what he is, the creator, holy. That's a, that sentence is supposed to cause us to slap our hands over our mouths and proclaim as Job did after he got a glimpse of the God that had saved him. He said in Job 40, verse 4, Behold, I am a small account. What shall I answer you? I lay my mouth, or my hand on my mouth. Again, we're shown how off base we humans are concerning man and God. And then John in our verses suddenly changes directions. And he adds commentary once again, verses 9 through 11. He says, When a large crowd of Jews learned that Jesus was there, they came not only on account of him, but also to see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. So the chief priests made uh, plans to put Lazarus to death as well, because on the account of him, many of the Jews were going away and believing in Jesus. Once again, in this commentary, there's irony at play. This, too, is the part of the human condition. Those Jewish religious leaders are facing a problem. The problem that because of Jesus raising Lazarus from the dead, that people are believing on him. So their solution to that problem was to murder not just one man, but two. I guess they never stopped to think. If Jesus could have raised that man back to life after he died of an illness, couldn't he raise that man again if we murdered him? And they never stopped to think. If Jesus could raise that man back to life and he had control, power over life and death, couldn't he raise himself as well? Again, we're just showing how off base we humans are concerning man and God. These Jewish leaders couldn't be burdened with logic or with reason because they knew that with every breath that Lazarus took, every conversation he had on every day, the miraculous power of Jesus over death was being proclaimed. And because of that, many people were going away and believing in Jesus. And the word in the original Greek that is translated in our text as going away means that they were changing their allegiance. They were switching sides. This is a great descriptor for the new life that is found in Christ. 
when a, a person is brought into new life, when they are made alive to God, when they have their heart regenerated to know and love God, they will then hear the call of their master and they'll come. Their allegiance to the old world is no longer complete, no longer defining, because they have a new love, a new allegiance, and they come. Saints, has the pull of the old allegiance of the world and the things of the world, is that concerning to you? Do you fret over the fact that the adoration that you have for the Lord is not the same as that of Mary? That, in fact, you can more readily identify with Judas than you do with Mary? Don't be confused by this. If you have been made alive to Christ by God, then you have his spirit living inside of you. But all too often you find yourself going back to that old allegiance. How can this be, you wonder? If I'm saved, then why do I still have these desires? Why do I return to the vomit that I used to wallow in? You're not alone in this. This is not an uncommon problem. Once again, we make way too much of ourselves. We judge ourselves and others as if they, we, are the beginning of our faith. This thinking is wrong, so much so that God addresses it in 2 Corinthians. Paul tells us, but we have this treasure, that's his spirit, in jars of clay. To show the surpassing power, that it, to show that it belongs to God and not to us. But don't get me wrong. Faith is an essential evidence of salvation in the, in the life of the Christian. It's a means that God has given us to spur each other on in our devotion and faith. So you're sitting there asking, what is faith? Well, God tells us what that is in Hebrews 11.1. 1. Faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the evidence or conviction of things not seen. And then he goes on in Hebrews 11, and he gives us a litany of examples of, of the faith being worked out in the lives of saints that have gone before us. Flawed, broken people who had been redeemed by a perfect holy God, who in faith and by faith, out of adoration for the God that saved them, acted. And then after doing that in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 1, he tells us, Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Isn't this how you feel? like your old self is a weight around your neck, like you're dragging a dead body behind you? Since this is the case, or will be at some time in our walk with the Lord, God in his infinite wisdom t 
tells us how to lay aside that weight, how to cut that cord that is attached to that dead body of sin that we're dragging around. Hebrews 12, 2, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Saints, Jesus is the founder of your faith. It, like your salvation, is not yours. It is his. It has been given to us by him. But then why is my, weak, my faith so weak? Why does the world hold such a sway over me? Because you're not doing the very thing that Mary did. The very thing that Hebrews 12, 2 tells us to do. Look to Jesus. What Mary did was, by definition, looking to Jesus. When her brother died, not this act. I am not talking about this act. When her brother died, she had looked all around her instead of looking to Jesus. She was influenced by the spirit of this age, gave in to that old body of death, to the point of questioning the goodness of God in not doing what she desired. This is chapter 11, verse 32. But it was after that, it was after she came to Christ with her accusation, after Jesus told her that if she believed that she would see the glory of God, it was then, it was in doing that, that she was looking to Jesus. And it was then that she saw the glory of God. And then she saw Jesus demonstrate that glory in the raising of her brother. And I would submit to you that the adoration for Jesus that she had was not because of him raising Lazarus. And I submit that to you because the adoration that you have for the Lord does not come from the things that he has given you, does it? Her adoration for the Lord was produced in coming to Jesus. It was in this act of faith that her faith grew. Isn't this, isn't this not the same thing that we're told of in John chapter 4 concerning that religious leader whose son was at the point of death? That father who in desperation made that eight-hour trek to come to Jesus. And after coming to him and begging him to come heal his son, his son or he would die, it was after he came to Jesus that Jesus told him, go home, your son's going to live. And he believed, and he stayed, and he stayed the night, and then he began walking home late the next day. The point that I'm making is that since Jesus is the author of your faith, if you desire for your faith to be strengthened, to be built up, to be perfected, then you must look to Jesus. You must come to him. And then he will stretch out his hand, touch you, strengthen you, 
as you do acts of faith. The demonstration of extreme humility and faith that we read about here by Mary happened only because the faith that she had was strengthened by Jesus when she looked to him. Do you not desire to run your, way, your race well? To lay aside every weight and the sin that in easily hinders you? Then do what Mary did. Look to Jesus. Take what little faith that you have been given and act on it. The more that you do that, the more that your faith is exercised, the more that it will be perfected. And the greater the aroma of that faith will surround you and those surrounding you as well. Hear Paul on this in 2 Corinthians 2. He says, But thanks be to God, who in Christ always, always leads us in a triumphal procession, and through us spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of him everywhere. I want to stop there. The knowledge of him everywhere. What do you think he's talking about? Is he talking about us being good neighbors? Is he talking about us being friendly? Is he talking about us giving money to charities? The knowledge of him everywhere. He's talking about us witnessing, telling people the truth of God and who they are. For we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. From one, a fragrance from death to death, and to the other, a fragrance from life to life. And then he finishes this thought with this. Who is sufficient for these things? All those that were in that room on that day were affected by the humble devotion and act of faith by Mary to her Lord. They were all beneficiaries of it. They all were able to dwell in the fragrance of life to life that was emanating from the works that she had done. This is the grace of God towards his children in acts of faith. These men, they were all reclining at that table the very men that would all fail, all fall away, all fail. Those very men that Christ would use as pillars in building his church. These men were all affected and influenced by the actions, the devotion, the love, the adoration of this woman. This woman that, that demonstrated those things on that day. And there's one more thing that I want to encourage you of and in from our text today. One question that I want to ask you. What did Lazarus do to deserve to be reclining at the table with the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords? What did he do? What mighty works had he performed? What acts of faith? We are only told of one, one. He obeyed when he was called. 
And now he's sitting at the king's table. Saints, if you have been called by God as his own, if you, like Lazarus, have been made alive once again, been given ears to hear the, man, the command to come, and if you have been given that desire and ability to obey that command and have come in faith out of obedience, it doesn't matter how strong your legs were when you obeyed that coming. It doesn't matter. The strides that you took in coming are not what is being judged. It is merely the obeying and the coming. Lazarus hobbled out of the tomb. He was all bound up and had to be unbound. But he was alive, alive to Christ, alive to the command to come. And it would have been reasonable for him when he heard that command from Jesus to come that he could have, he could have called back at that time and just said, um... I, I can't come at the moment. I'm all tied up. And he could have said, I'll be there in a few minutes after I regain my strength. Uh, I was just dead. He could have decided, it is way too embarrassing to come out of this tomb dressed like I am. But because he had been given ears to hear and a heart the desire to obey, he came. He came hobbling to the entrance of that tomb, ecstatic to be able to come. This is the single act of faith that we know that he did. And because of this act of faith, he has been given a seat at the table with the king of kings. Saint, if you are a saint, then know that you too, no matter how burdened you feel, no matter how small your acts of faith seem to be to you, know this as truth. If Jesus has called you as his own, if he has redeemed you, and if out of obedience and love you have come, if like David you can say, the Lord is my shepherd, then you can know that you, you have a seat at the table with the Lord of Lords and the King of Kings. That he will prepare a table for you in the presence of your enemies. And he does this because he loves you. Saints, listen to what the Lord says about you. Just listen. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9. But you are a, a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may, pro that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of this darkness and into his marvelous light. Ephesians 1 even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will. Galatians chapter 4. And because you are sons, 
because you are sons. God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. And then Zephaniah 3. The Lord your God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love. He will exult over you with loud singing. And know this as well. You, like Lazarus and Simon the leper, are trophies of his grace. Just as people marveled at the new life given Lazarus, may we too walk in the newness of life that he has given us as well. May we in faith spur our brothers and sisters on through acts of faith. And may we all do this out of love and adoration for the one that first loved us. All for his glory. Let's pray.